I'm looking at the topic list. Are we talking about something a little heavier or a bit lighter today? What do you think? I might be a little bit angry about some of the things that are going on on social media in the UK currently. Okay, so something on the lighter side then. And I'll try not to make it angry. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm finding that that's limiting our options. <laughs> Welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we answer every single question with It Is Complicated, including the title of the podcast, which is It Is Complicated. Hello, Dr. J. Hello, Josephine. I should ask, where are you coming from today? That's a good question because you might hear from the slight difference in my voice modulation, as Jay put it just before we started recording, that I'm on a different microphone. And the reason I'm on a different microphone is because I'm not currently in Stockholm. I am on the island of Goths. <gasps> the island of the Goths! I am. I am on Gotland, which is an island off the coast of Sweden, the Baltic Sea, which is where I do a lot of my work as a lecturer at the university here and where I do my research as well. It is a lovely island, and I'm in this lovely house, which I share with two of my very fine colleagues. But there's the, no cat to come in meowing at random points in time. No, there's not a cat. There are two cats that <laughs> do that, Jay, um, because <laughs> the house that I'm living in came with two cats, and they kind of own the place, and they come in and out whenever the hell they want, and do whatever the hell they want, and that's cats for you, really. That does just describe a cat. Hello, Jay. How are you? Hello, Josephine. I am good. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. Jay, would you like to explain who you are to the people? Oh, who am I? So I'm Dr. Jay. I use they as a pronoun. I got to give myself the job title Harbinger of Change because I work at a technology consultancy called ThoughtWorks who allow people like me to do things like that, which is uh, amazing. I'm a transgressive, non-binary, genderqueer. Josephine did, in fact, help me write that sentence. And that is what I would like to state upon your forms. When you please, what is your gender? I would like to say that. The New Zealand government did allow me to say that. And I now have a lovely X on my passport. As if none of the above has let you know, I'm a troublemaker and a hashtag queer nuisance because, well, I like to brand myself in weird and peculiar ways that make me very distinctive. So, Josephine, what are you, babes? <laughs> <laughs> okay, hi. <laughs> hi, my name is Josephine Baird. I am a academic and an artist. I used to like to make a spectacle of myself upon the stage. This is something that would be relevant today. I don't do it as much anymore. What I do more often in an artistic sense is draw pictures of queers and put them on the internet. It's October when we're about to record this, so I'm going to be doing Inktober again, which is doing a drawing every day related to a prompt. So I'll be putting that on Instagram and other places. I am also a lecturer in game design at the University of Uppsala Department of Game Design, which resides on Gotland in Sweden. I also research on that subject. And I like to think of myself as a femme of international history because it sounds amazing and I like to aspire to such things. I do like you aspiring to such things. I think you also forgot to mention that you're working on your PhD as well. Did I forget to mention that shit? Allow me to add <laughs> plus one. Yes, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Vienna, writing about trans people and games. 
and how we play them and how they might lead to transformational experiences. I love the fact that your title will have trans and transformation. I wonder if we can also get transgressive in there and then I would feel absolutely so seen by by your work. you and I should workshop a title for my PhD that could include the words trans, transgressive and all the other fabulous things. What do you think? Absolutely. Because we kind of did that to come up with my gender. I believe when we were doing that, we were playing Sing Star and we discovered that I can't even hold a single note consistently. So, dear listener, if you could imagine us sitting on the floor of my London apartment, or it was mine, right? And yeah, we... it was yours, and we were eating McDonald's. <laughs> yes, we were. To our shame. To our shame. Our eternal shame. But it was the only place open on the way home from wherever. We'd been at a bar, whatever, or something. It was probably a Saturday night, Sunday morning after a performance. Neither of us really drink, so we were trying to do that windy down bit. And so anyway, continue we went, the story. <laughs> we went home to my place and sat down and played Sing Star. And in the meantime, workshop Jay's gender. <laughs> because what better place venue and or game to play while you're doing that and I think absolutely I think, uh, you, you seem to be pretty happy with the result eh? I am very happy with the result I think that came out of probably the stuff that we'd seen over the weeks and months leading up to that because there'd been transfabulous there'd been a trans day of remembrance there had been a lot of bar whatever there had been some other club nights that we'd been to together Because I know that I've talked before about the fact that performance changes your life and changes how you think about things. And every performance that you see shifts your brain slightly in a different direction. Your brain can reconfigure the world based on the performance that you see if you're open to those things. You can sometimes just see a performance as pretty, but a lot of the performances I was seeing were opening my brain to new ideas. So I had seen Josephine perform as a How to Be a Femsex Vixen. By that time, I had seen some of Jet Moon. I had seen a lot of Jason Barker. I had seen a lot of, gosh, there were so many people on the scene at that time. And I'm just, those are the ones that I remember because they were ones that were kind of germane to that whole understanding of who I might be and where those edges might be and how I describe myself. It sounds to me like what you're saying is that what happened was that conversation happened literally after being at a performance, but also after being at many performances that you'd been experiencing in London in the early 2000s, because that's where you and I met. And also going to lots of environments where there was a lot of people performing, and they were performing a lot about gender subjectivity, about their experiences, about who they were, about trying to find out who they were, or the experiences they had in the process of finding out who they were. And that this had an impact on how you found yourself. Yes. And some of it was incredibly serious and very earnest and performancey. And some of it was very funny. And some of it was taking that performance and turning it in different ways. And then it even got me thinking about performing and trying to remember if I came up with Professor Debonair and boxes before or after I had my gender. And I literally can't recall which order they came in, but I know that they both feed back on each other. Because I remember Professor Debonair was all about that notion of being forced into two boxes and trying to exist outside of those two genders. 
Jay formed a, a character, and I believe it was inspired by a panel conversation that I was part of discussing gender and gender theory and gender experience at the Science Museum. So you can imagine what kind of conversation that was. It was really intense, but it was just also, to me personally, really funny because it was like trying to describe gender experience and my own experience but of course I was also a scholar at the time studying that and so you know I'd been invited as this expert to the science museum tell us about gender Josephine you know well hello <laughs> let me tell you about gender and it was such a weird experience that Jay and I talked about it afterwards you developed this amazing character this pompous academic as you say who is trying to describe the nature and function of boxes and whether or not they were good or bad to be in and without and surrounded by boxes that you weren't actually located in. The one line that triggered that entire performance that came from the panel was masculinized women are just created by an excess of androgens in the womb and that is easily cured. And this is just part of me going, my existence and people like mine existence I saw myself as a bit trans mask at the time. Really not, but, you know, hey, at the time I was going through this journey, I was in a little bit of a trans mask stage. I could see that somebody was talking about the extinction of people like myself in an instant. And that just made me not quite see red. I just couldn't deal with it. And the only way of dealing with that was to do like Ministry of Silly Walks and performance. And that riff turned into my first performance that I read from a piece of paper, I've lost a piece of paper, sadly, but from a piece of paper that I read on stage, I don't think I looked up the entire time that I was performing on stage. I'm not a natural performer. And then worked on it and worked on it and worked on it with Josephine until it actually became a little bit more of almost a dialogue until our first performance together. You were part of a conversation that a lot of people were having at that time, a lot of people who weren't able to have that conversation in any other part of their lives, were finding opportunity to do it in performative environments, right? And yes, I should note, by the way, that I was not the academic what said that. And though Jay said they didn't see red, I did. And, and I felt this um, incredible urge to uh, explode vomit on the person who did say that. <laughs> but uh, I didn't. I just, I just, I, I would like to think I returned with a witty retort as opposed to you know, just being violently ill all over them because it was a particularly stupid thing to say. And I'm glad it inspired a performance as a response because that so often is the case for the queer performers that I knew and myself still now is to take a difficult experience, something that doesn't have language is what I used to say, is that experiences that often don't get verbalised because alternative experiences rarely are. The normative is verbalized, given terms, and the alternative is usually given a pejorative at best, right? And there isn't really a language for how to talk about our experiences. And so you take something difficult, challenging, hard to process and turn it into a performance. My colleagues, Sarah and Shell and a few others uh, that I work with are very much interested in looking into this as part of our research is to look at what it might be like to role play certain experiences and what that could do to you in terms of a positive effect on your well-being, your psyche, your consideration, your view of the world, your view of yourself. And I think that's what we were all doing consciously or unconsciously. And I'm so glad that was part of it for you, Jay. I mean, did Professor Debonair help you come to the gender that you feel you came to then? In our little... Well, I think I did, because if I can get the line right, there was this Dr. Seuss moment of what do we use to define her? Is it 
her box? Is it her virtual cock? Is it the cock in her box? Is it her cock in a box? Or is it the box of cocks besides her bed? And it's just kind of playing around with all of those notions around putting somebody into a binary when they don't actually belong in it. And how do you play around with it? And even just asking that question out loud on stage was really powerful because it was saying to people, how do you see me? Because it's like, how do you take all of this and try to put it together into a notion of gender? Everyone's trying to force you to be more masculine or more this or more that. And you're just ending up in this confusion. And that was a lot of what I was trying to express in the performance while also being incredibly sleazy. A 1970s piss take of an academic via my father's love of Benny Hill. Professor Demonair really is the worst of all types. And as a non-performer, it was really freeing to kind of take those ideas and play with them. I mean, Josephine's created much more really well-developed characters. Goodness, I could go into academic mode so easily. There's so much theory on the roles we play in everyday life. The, the idea that the social roles that we're given at birth, whatever they are and whatever they are ascribed to, and unfortunately they're almost always ascribed to physical characteristics, and we're given these roles that are supposedly fixed and completely natural, except for then they wouldn't have to be a role and you wouldn't have to be given them and you wouldn't have to be taught them. You certainly wouldn't need to be policed with them because they'd be natural and everybody would be doing them and it wouldn't be a thing, right? Because we're all being required to do this all the time, a solution, a response to that could be role-playing something else or role-playing the normative and demonstrating that it doesn't need to be normative. It doesn't have to be that way. Yes, it can be that way, but it doesn't have to be that way. And like I said, for me personally, it was a really big deal to be able to perform. That's why I created such, I don't know, uh, such a number of characters. And uh, well, when I first started to perform, I had this rule for myself that I wouldn't perform characters. I'd only perform myself on stage. And the reason I said that was because that I felt that I'd been required to perform someone else for the rest of my life at that point and I didn't want to do it anymore I wanted to perform something real and authentic and so for a couple of years at least to begin with like 2003 2004 which is when I really started out I was doing dance performances or spoken word stuff but I was doing it as myself it only really started to happen later on when I started to do characters and then at first I thought to myself oh, I'm doing characters this is so brilliant I'm so creative these characters, they're nothing like me. They're nothing to do with me at all. They're so unique. And then, of course, the second you scratch even the most superficial aspect of their surface and you realize, oh, yeah, they're massive representations of internal struggle of one way or another. You know? It's just like, oh, yeah, they're all me. <laughs> they're all aspects of me that I'm role-playing and I'm trying to consider. And I found that each of those characters was tremendously useful to express something that was difficult to discuss or express something that was challenging to me personally or even as a community and then yeah to process because that's one of the functions of role play is to consider what it might be like to be another way or what it's like to be this way and to consider the alternative perhaps See, I'm just considering this and that the way that we're talking about this it might come across that our performances were very serious, very worthy, very full of meaning and nuance with every moment and all of those things. And I just want to assure you, no, seriously, they weren't. 
Our performances are funny and silly and lighthearted, as well as having deep meaning in them. I mean, there's one that Josephine and I workshopped and created together about the devil that is one of the silliest performances that I think you could do, but that also turns into an entire moment about homophobia and transphobia and all of the ways that biblical words are are used against us. The thing that I used to play with performance, and I still do, I guess, in many regards, is absurdity. And it comes from a sense of like comedy is about the absurd, right? And laughing is an attempt to break tension. It's actually about anxiety. Like comedy causes anxiety because comedy is absurd. It's all about the absurd. And, and laughing is a way of breaking the tension of the absurd. Also, I really love the axiom from philosophy that says if you're going to try and show an argument is wrong, something that someone says that sounds very convincing, if you want to show how wrong it is, take it to its logical conclusion, ad absurdum. We all know ad nauseum. This is a, a way of disproving an argument is ad absurdum. You take an argument to its absurd conclusion. And so sometimes I find a way of breaking tension and anxiety and demonstrating how problematic something is, is to demonstrate how absurd it really is. And usually that's quite funny. The other reason that I tend towards the comedy angle is that if you are trying to convince someone that their opinion might not be correct. I have another little theory, and this one's mine. And the theory is this. If someone laughs at your joke, they understand the joke, which means they understand your point of view. So if I make you laugh about something, even if you disagree with me intellectually or believe you disagree with me ideologically about something, if I make you laugh, you have to have seen my point of view. I used to do a lot of work with LGBT rights and political organizations to try to improve LGBT rights. And the way in which I approached it was with comedy. I would go into people who perhaps were not exactly encouraged to deal with LGBT rights and weren't particularly interested. And I would try to make them laugh (laughs) about those things, because if they laughed, they had to see my point of view. Now, whether or not they did anything about it, that's another thing, but at least they saw my point of view. And so for me, performance, especially absurd performance or comedy performance, has so many functions. And one of those is to break our tensions as people. We're LGBT people living in a really hostile environment. We need to laugh about this shit because otherwise, yeah, what are we going to be doing, right? And then we need to explore the absurdity that is gender and gender roles and gender functions and recognize our authentic selves. And one of the ways we can do that is by exploring all these things through role play, through laughter, through joy, because we're trying to find our way to gender euphoria. And then finally, we'd like people to maybe change their minds a bit. So (laughs) we make them laugh. I think there's also another piece in there, which is we want people in the audience to feel seen, to feel like their experience of the world in some way is reflected from the stage and there's nothing more powerful than watching a performer and an audience reflect backwards and forwards at each other. And I say this as a photographer, as somebody who's gone to lots of performances, those powerful moments, there was one that still sends shivers up my spine. I don't know whether I actually captured it when I photographed it, but there was a moment when Latrice 
motherfucking Royale came on stage at the Black Cap. Long may she live in peace. And this room was full of people. She came on stage and she said something like, I love you all. And there was literally this roar that went back to her that she then reflected back to the room. And that just went back to her. And there was just this like two or three moments of just this intense, and I'm almost going to say spiritual moment of everyone in the room feeling seen by the person on stage reflecting back to them, by the person on the stage performing back, but also so authentically performing, so authentically saying, I love you all, that everyone in the room said it back and felt it. And it was just a massive, intense emotion. And that was just one of the most amazing moments. And I see bits of it at times when I see some of our friends perform. Um, we have a friend who's a drag queen called Me, which makes the rest of the sentence sound so bad. Me was on stage on Monday night doing a lip sync to I'm still here. And it was kind of like, I've been through this year and I'm still here. And everyone in the room was caught up in this and was reflecting back. Yes, we are still here. We are, despite everything that's going on, we are in a room of people that we can say we are still here and we know who we is. We know who I am. We know who me is. We know all of those things and we feel connected and we feel those connections. And I think that's another side of performance that sometimes we forget about. It's about people feeling connected to it. It's a psychological side. It's a psychosocial side of performance where the crowd almost to one experiences an emotion and reflects it towards the stage. The thing that I recognize, for example, and the thing that I'm looking at in my research, wow, we really are in academic land for Josephine today, is one of the things that is reported to be the most important aspects of identity formation and feeling good about who you are as a person is having that identity reflected back at you, to be respected and reflected back at you. Now, I mean, this might be from the, um, what is it, the Department of Obvious Things, but <laughs> it has in fact been researched and Generally, it's considered that it is a huge part of identity formation to have your identity recognized by someone else and reflected back at you. In the short, it's really nice if someone uses your pronoun because it means that you've been seen. So that's reflected back at you, right? So to perform your authenticity, you know, whether that's on a stage or in everyday life or in the audience in any way can be a hugely powerful an important and transformative experience. That's what I'm studying. Part of the things that I'm studying is like, if you're playing a game and you're trying to explore a gender that you believe might be close to who you are in an environment where that's most difficult, is being reflected back at you in that game important to who you are, to finding your way towards your authentic sense of self? I think it is. And that's why I'm looking at it. But I also think it happens in lots of different environments and lots of similar environments like, for example, performing on stage or, as you rightly say, being an audience member, participating in that interaction because that's what it is. It's a performance with an audience, even if that performance is for yourself with a select few people. It's why it's important. It's why it changes your life. Jay has, has often talked about how they feel performance changes your life regularly, consistently, constantly, profoundly. And I think they're absolutely right. And as a performer, it's changed my life. I can draw a direct line between being a performer and existing currently here on the island of Goths doing what I'm doing as a trans person. 
it changed my life. As a person who feels happier and more centered in myself and doing the things that I'm doing, it's changed my life. Seeing performances by artists of all kinds, exploring all senses themselves has been profoundly important. And then seeing people doing that in all aspects of their lives, whether it's literally on a stage or not, has been deeply, profoundly impactful. This is kind of one of those ones we could come back to multiple times because there's so many different aspects of performance that we could talk about. But I almost feel like we've run through a lot of this. I can't think of in, in a first pass of this or a first draft. I think we've, you've kind of summed it up. There's a lot and there's still so much to unpack from all of these little nuances. But I mean, maybe the second part is how we perform now. Why am I not on the stage? Why do I do talks and podcasts rather than be on stage and things like this? Why is photographing performance so integral to my sense of self? It's a complicated topic in a lot of ways. And yes, we can absolutely return to it in many ways. And I think that's because it's pervasive. The performances that we talk about pervade our lives in every aspect, but they also pervade across time. At one point in my life, I thought I would always be on stage one way or another. The fact that I haven't been on a stage for some time surprises me. If I told my younger self this, they would be shocked. But if I went back another 10 years, they would have gone, you're on a stage in front of people? You're doing what? So, you know, change is a big part of that. I guess I'm performing in different ways now, Jay. And weirdly enough, I'm returning to it in my work because we're talking a lot about role play and we're talking about role playing games. And one of the things that I'm looking into designing is role playing experiences that could be transformative for people like me and you and people who would be interested in exploring their identities. So performance in many aspects has been a huge part of Jay's and my life. We met through performance. Jay came to a performance I was giving and then I met them afterwards and formed a partnership that's gone over many, many years and has led us here. And I think perhaps a conversation we can have at some point, Jay, is about the fleeting aspect of performance and that we have on occasion been lucky enough to record performances, either through photography, which is a passion of Jay's and a particular skill of theirs. But we've also had the opportunity to be filmed on occasion. And then when those things are lost or they don't represent us in quite the way we wish they did, that's really difficult. And that is part of the reflective process, which is less positive. Perhaps at some point we could talk about photography or recording. That's always interesting. You know, I always think of performance, especially within queer environments, as a way of recording our histories. Because one of the things that I was very aware of when I started out was that our histories were not recorded. They just weren't. That at best, we had oral histories and performances that appeared, and we would talk about ourselves in those environments. I was an academic without library access, and I couldn't find very much written about us. The times when I could find out about who we were was in performance spaces, so as essentially a non-academic I'm a science academic I'm not an academic like Josephine's an academic I couldn't find or understand when people were writing about us I couldn't get my head around queer theory as we've talked about when you're living it you can't comprehend it unless you go away and almost study it 
I was about to say you're too caught up in the subjective to be objective, but that's me oh. using the big words almost right, but maybe not. No, no, you, I think you used them right, but I would challenge you very, very much on that because I think subjectivity is a big part of finding the very truth that you're talking about. I think the thing that you mentioned is reflexivity, is the thing that you're in it. And so when you can't see the edges of it, it can be very difficult to have a sense of the thing. So reflexivity, having it reflected back at you, recognizing it's why it's so important to see ourselves represented in the media, for example, or, or anywhere else or included in life so that you can have a sense of, oh, I'm like that, or that's kind of like me. You recognize yourself, you reflect about yourself. So if you feel like you're isolated and you're the only one, it's really hard to have a sense of who you are. It's really difficult because it's scary, it's dangerous, and you have no point of reference. So subjective... You could be an alien. You, well, that's that's why it's called alienation, right? It's why it's, called, <laughs> it's why it's called feeling like you're an alien, because that's the problem. You feel like you've just been dumped on this planet of normativity and you're the only odd one out. But the truth is you're not. So how can we find that out without people being loud and proud? And sometimes that's needed. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that everybody has to do that. That's a slip that I think often is made. It does mean, however, that those people who have been able to be out and proud and loud and performative have made a huge impact on me. Like I remember being a teenager and not knowing that trans people existed. And then when I'd found out about them, I'd, I'd found out about trans people through daytime TV shows that were utterly awful. And then the first not awful representation of a trans person that I saw was Eddie Izzard performing like late night TV and talking about being trans and being fucking funny about it. And she was hilarious. And I remember that being hugely impactful on me. My God, I videotaped that thing and I watched and yes, I'm old enough that it was a videotape. And yes, I used it to the point where it became all staticky because this was like, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is a trans person who's not like shrouded in literal silhouette with their voice changed because that really was the only other representation that I'd seen on daytime TV. This is someone who's standing there speaking their truth, being fucking funny. It was amazing. It meant the world to me at the time. And I know and that Eddie Izzard has gone through public issues and we can talk about that another time if we want. But at the time when I saw it, it meant the world to me. And it's about being reflected. And that's a subjective experience. And it's got nothing to do with objective truth. It's got to do with authenticity. And that is objectively true in the sense that it is true. But it's always going to be your truth. Yeah. Lots to talk about, Jay. But in the meantime, I'm really happy you came to my show. I'm really happy to have performed with you. I'm utterly thrilled that you took pictures of shows that I'm involved in because it reflected something back at me. And I'm especially happy that we sat on my floor in my bedroom playing <laughs> sing star and sat with bits of paper and drew out your gender in a way that you felt reflected you and it felt real and that's yeah. profoundly moving to me that i could be part of that with you so performance changes your life everyone so it's complicated but not yeah, and some well, I mean that's yeah. that's our that's like our brand, isn't it, Jay? Like the thing is complicated, but really it isn't. We fooled you again, dear listener. Oh. 
I don't think we've fooled anyone that this no, is not complicated. Fooled, Jay, we have fooled no one of anything ever. Anyway, we'll set that aside for this time. We will return to it, I'm sure, at some point. In the meantime, however, while we're waiting to talk about that, Jay, it is my constant and joy to ask you <laughs> each time we have this kind of conversation and record it and put it out there for our dear listener, what you would like to talk about next week and does it involve Keanu Reeves being breathtaking? Uh, yes, it does. I recently watched the movie called River's Edge. Now, all I can say about this movie, I would give it almost zero stars. In fact, I'd give it negative stars and a content warning. Keanu Reeves is indeed breathtaking. And one of the joys of the movie is the wildly different styles of acting of everyone on screen, going from hilariously, shriekingly overacted to Keanu Reeves's very naturalistic acting style, one might say. But also the story is fucking awful and sadly reflects a culture that hasn't changed since I was 17. It's about the murder of a girl that's ignored by the police and the friends who hear about this murder, not to give away the ending because, my God, you don't need to watch that much of the movie to figure this one out. The friends of the murderer are more concerned about the murderer than they are about the victim, even though everyone also knew the victim. The police are very much the same. There is just this constant misogyny that still exists in our society that is totally reflected in this movie. Should you watch this movie? No. Is Keanu Reeves breathtaking? Yes. Do I wish I hadn't watched it? Yes, I could have had the two hours back. Does that make me like Keanu Reeves any less? No. And will it stop me from doing this slow and pervasive trawl through all of Keanu Reeves' oeuvre? Probably not. But I'm sure that there are some real bad ends in there. Did this movie reflect the time? Yes, because it reflects now as well. Should this have been an upbeat ending? Yes. Is it? I'm very sorry, but it isn't. Misogyny is just Blair. Keanu Reeves is breathtaking. Please, we'll revisit it at another time. Should we try and end on a happy note? I don't know. Should we? Shall we? Could we? Would we? I think we should end on a happy note. La! La! <laughs> I love the fact that we both went for it. <laughs> And that is how bad both of us are at singing, as I think we both attempted for the same note. Well, I attempted for a note, and I think Josephine attempted for the one I was going for. Dear listener, ending on a high note, because this is the kind of performers we are, and it's been lovely to have you. Thank you for coming. Uh, we will return next time with more jaunty joyfulness and discussions of all things complicated. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to support us, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash it is complicated or one word. You can follow us on Twitter. It is complicated without the E at the end. It is complicated uh, because we were too long. You'll find hey. us wherever good podcasts are sold. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.